we have two. First one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, which says this, says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Spiritually, through the Holy Spirit, thankfully we are being renewed day by day because we need God. Acts 17, 17, where the apostle Paul says that he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. So who is it that just happens to be in your life, right? Who is it that happens to be in your workplace, happens to be in your school district, happens to be in your family? You don't get to pick your family, right? You're born into that family, but it's not a coincidence that you are where you are and God has placed them in your life and he's placed you in their life for a reason. And it's because you are called to be an everyday saint. Everywhere you go, you're taking the love of Jesus. And so that's what this series is all about. It's about taking the faithfulness of studying God's word into the day-to-day. Now, my key text for this message is found in Acts chapter 9, and we're going to be learning about a man who is a little bit of a hidden hero, but you might recognize the story as one you've heard maybe in Sunday school, no matter what your upbringing, you've heard of the Apostle Paul. And so this is a story that you might have heard about him, but I want to point out to you an everyday saint that makes a huge difference in the book of Acts chapter 9. So let's go ahead and dive in. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So just to bring you up to speed, what's taking place right now historically is the followers of Jesus, the disciples of Jesus, the Messiah, are being persecuted. We know that Stephen has already been stoned. He's been put to death by the religious leaders. Saul is a religious leader, and he is on his way to Damascus because he has gone through the religious court system. He's basically, essentially, he's gotten the warrants. He's going to make the arrests, and he is leading this cause, and he's voting for the death penalty. Not only does he want to arrest the followers of Jesus, but once he brings them back in chains, he's voting for the death penalty. He wants to put an absolute end once and for all to the followers of Jesus. They are calling it, they nicknamed it, the way. They're followers of the way. The way, the truth, and the life. Come on, somebody. I think you get it. So this is Saul on his way to arrest people in Damascus. I want to show you a map of where Damascus is in relation to Jerusalem. It's about 150 miles to the northeast. So this would be the same distance as if you were to walk this, it would be like walking from here, walking out towards 77 and heading northeast-ish to Sandusky. Sandusky is about 150 miles away. It's pretty much straight up, almost near the border. And uh, maybe you wanted to go to Cedar Point this afternoon. You better start walking now. It's 150 miles and it's a long way. I mean, you can take your Honda Accord, but back then they're probably driving a donkey, okay? Not top speed, maybe 15 miles an hour. So this is a dedication that Saul has to travel to Damascus. And the reason he's going to Damascus, as you can see here, there are several major trade routes running through Damascus. Several. I mean, there's one of them nicknamed the King's Highway. You see the Via Maris, which is going along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, eventually meets up in Damascus. All roads lead to Damascus, as you can see here on this map. God is going to speak directly 
to a man named Saul on his way to Damascus. And wouldn't it be like God to speak to a man who's about to walk into what is known today as the world's oldest inhabited city, where there are roadways leading to every direction of the earth. I mean, we're talking about a powerful and influential place for something miraculous to happen that would spread throughout the whole world. So this is an amazing thing what God is about to do. So let's continue to read here in verse three. It says, now as he went on his way to Damascus, he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So here is a picture of the road to Damascus. No one is positive where exactly this took place. No one is for sure that this is the exact road, but this is a main road left in the same condition that would have taken you from Jerusalem to Damascus. Imagine standing on this road. I like to put myself there in the moment, maybe like as if I am Saul and all of a sudden this bright light shines. It's so bright. It freaks everybody out. He falls to the ground and he hears the voice of God in a vision saying to him, hey, if you're messing with my followers, you're messing with me. I love that. I, I just want to say it one more time because I just want to remind the devil. If you mess with the followers of Jesus Christ, you're messing with Jesus Christ. Amen? Because he's in for it. I mean, you don't mess with my babies. Jesus is saying, you're messing with my kid. You're messing with my children. And I'm telling you, you better stop. And luckily, he doesn't just strike him dead, but he says, you get an opportunity here to flip the script and change your ways. So I like to just put myself right there and imagine what is taking place right now. We continue in verse seven. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the word, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I mean, it sounds like it may have gotten Saul's attention. I don't know about you, but this would have been more than enough to shake me to my core, to get me to begin to take some inventory and, and recognize who it was that I was dealing with here, <laughs> the creator of heaven and earth. And he asked a good question. Who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one that you're persecuting. And so now he is being led into the city and it continues here. It gets even more interesting. It says that while this was happening, it says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, probably the same thing I would have answered. Lord, I've heard about this man. Let's make sure we're talking about the same guy here. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. 
for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, taking food. He was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. So he goes to arrest Christians and then becomes one. That's what's happening here. He's on his way to arrest people. And then he decides, I'm not going to go through with that anymore. Because I have experienced, I have had a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. So there's this persecution happening. Saul is not the only one, although he is a leader in this movement, ready to shut everything down. But God decides to flip the script. He decides to change the plan that he has for Saul. Many of you know the Apostle Paul, no matter what your background is. This is a man who has a dynamic ministry, writes two-thirds of the New Testament. I mean, speaks and plants churches. He is a fantastic man of God. But it all started right here. How many of you know it does not matter where you start? It matters where you end up. I mean, you could be miles and miles away from where God wants you to be, and it's not over. God can and will bring you back to him. And what he does is he uses his church family, he uses disciples to do it. I just love this account of a hero, a hidden hero behind this biblical hero of faith, Paul. I mean, so many people know about Paul, but not too many people talk a lot about Ananias. He is what you would call an everyday saint. He is someone who was at the right place, at the right time, and he was doing, I think we'll see here in a moment, he was doing the things he needed to do so that God could use him. So this marks a huge shift for Saul. He he goes later, four chapters later, he begins to go mostly by the name of Paul. And scholars have debated this, but what I've come to agree with is that it's more than likely Saul was already named Paul, and he had two names. Saul was his given Hebrew name, but like most Jews born in this time, he would have been given his Hebrew name as well as a Roman name because of the Roman Empire. So it's interesting to know what Saul means in Hebrew, and it's also interesting to know what Paul means in Hebrew. And for more on that, I challenge you to come to our context group this Thursday night where we're going to dig into that a little bit more. I can tell you that the name change is intentional. But we don't have a lot of time to get into that. That was a teaser. Pastor Josh, you're welcome for that. So, two questions pop up for me as we read these 20 verses. The first question is, why Damascus and why Ananias? We've already talked about the trade routes going through Rome, or going through Damascus. And as part of the Roman Empire, Damascus was very influential but he doesn't notice God does not wait for Saul. He doesn't wait for Saul to get halfway or he doesn't meet him, you know, as soon as he leaves Jerusalem. He wants Saul to get to Damascus, but he's got a different plan for him in Damascus. And so since Damascus is, is in the Syrian Empire and it's that crossroads, it is literally the place where you would go before you would take it anywhere else. So it would be like the hub 
of if you want to take something to Mesopotamia, you go through Damascus. If you want to take something into Egypt, you go through Damascus. If you want to continue south from one of those regions into Jerusalem, into the Judean wilderness, to all of those towns in those areas, you go through Damascus. This is a place where God is ready. This is the epicenter where God is about to unleash his church, take persecution into a revolution for his name, for the cause of Christ. But why Ananias? Of all the people that God could have sent to Saul, I mean, we're talking about a scary, in my opinion, this would have been a scary bad dude if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This is not the guy, of all the people, like if God were to speak to me and say, hey, I want you to pray for so-and-so, and he said, Saul, I would have done, ex- I would have had so many questions for God. I would have said, okay, wait a minute, but you said he's blind, right? Like he's completely blind. Like he's not gonna see me at all. Like I'll be able to get in a couple of hooks if I need to and he won't even see me. He won't be able to track me down. Like he's completely, I would have had so many questions, but I love the fact that Ananias answers, here I am leaning, putting himself in a posture to answer yes to the question before he even gets it. So your Bible, your Bible probably subtitles this portion of scripture, something along the lines of Saul's conversion or the conversion of the apostle Paul, something like that. But what I would suggest is that this is not a conversion experience. This is a revelation experience. Saul did not stop being a Jew. He just had a revelation of who Jesus was. He was and is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. This is his identity. He had a revelation of who he was. And he takes pride in being a Jew, takes even more pride in knowing that he has found the Messiah, the one thing every Jew longs to one day have a revelation of. It's an amazing thing. But the, the two things that stand out to me about Ananias is his heroic obedience. And the two things that he does in his heroic obedience is the first thing, practicing humility. I put myself in this story and I, I want to have the heroic obedience as an everyday saint like Ananias. In order to have that heroic obedience, we have to be able to respond the way Ananias responds. And the first thing he does is he practices humility. And I use the word practice here intentionally because this does not come naturally to me. Not having the last word in an argument, not always being right, does not come naturally to me. I want to be right and I want, all you gotta do, my only source is to go ask my wife. She will vouch for this. I naturally am not a humble person. We are all, if we're honest with ourselves, we are all a little bit selfish. Humility does does not come naturally. We need the Holy Spirit's help. And Ananias practices humility. He says, yes, Lord, here I am, but he struggles still with the idea of going to find the man who's there to find him. But God begins to explain to Ananias what he wants to do in the life of Saul. And something changes. The questions stop. Ananias recognizes, I think, he recognizes that what he has is not just for him, but it's for everyone whom the Lord our God shall call. I think he remembers back to the day of Pentecost when the, when the disciple Peter stood up in Acts 2.36, says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, 
brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God shall call. In this moment, Ananias recognizes that God has called him into the family and now he is calling Saul into the family. The next thing we can do to have the heroic obedience of Ananias is to serve consistently. See, Ananias was a consistent contributor to the early church as a servant. I mean, God could have chosen one of the original disciples to come and speak to Saul. He could have chose Apollos, one of the most influential speakers. He could have, he could have chose some of, these, some of these celebrity pastors, if you will, to step in and begin to speak into his life with this eloquent speech. But he doesn't do that. He chooses a disciple in Damascus named Ananias because he was humble and he was consistent. He was a consistent servant of the Most High God. We know this because in Acts 22, a little bit later on, Paul, speaking to the Sanhedrin, he, he gives a little shout out to Ananias and he's, he describes him this way. And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. So he had a reputation of being devout. He was a devout man. This was not the first time Ananias had been a servant of the Lord. He had a reputation of being a servant of the Lord and he was a devout man of God. God knew Ananias had what it took to accept the mission, to receive the opportunity and then serve him out of delight, not out of obligation. You see, this Wednesday, we as a nation will be honoring our veterans. Our veterans are going to be honored. Men and women who took the responsibility upon themselves to defend and to serve this great country. And the reason they did that, they didn't just wake up one day and put on the uniform and take a picture and say, okay, I'm a soldier. They put in the work. They were consistent in getting their mind ready, their body ready, and getting to a place where they were ready to defend our country if and when called upon. That's why they received the honor, because they were consistent contributors. I know we have men and women in this room who are veterans. And church family, we love you and we appreciate what you do. Can we put our hands together and honor you? Thank you for being a consistent contributor and for serving consistently. This is what Ananias was in the kingdom of God. He was a consistent contributor. So those two things are obvious to me. You know, when you're reading the Bible, sometimes things just pop right out at you and they're the obvious things. But really the thing that God spoke most deeply to me as I studied for this message was something that I skipped over at first. And maybe you did too, I don't know, but there's not a whole lot of details in the description of Ananias. But when I reread the story a few times, it hit me. In verse 10, it tells us everything we need to know about Ananias as to why God was willing to choose him. It says, and one Ananias, a devout man according to law, well spoken of by all the Jews. And it continues and says, now there was a disciple 
at Damascus named Ananias, a disciple. The Hebrew word for disciple is Talmud, a group of disciples. When God called disciples to come follow him, that they would have been referred to as Talmudim. They would have been the Talmudim of the rabbi Yeshua. A Talmudim, a Talmud is a student of the rabbi. Jesus is the teacher. The disciples are his students. Normally, during Jesus' day, and even to this day, if you would like to follow a rabbi and you feel like you have what it takes, you would approach the rabbi and ask him, can I follow you? I want to follow you. And he would ask you questions as a, an attempt to size you up to see if you had what it took to become like him. And that was your sole purpose. If you were able to receive the opportunity to follow a rabbi, your sole purpose in life was to become like your rabbi. You wanted to know what he knew, teach like him, preach like him, be like him, be a family, like everything about you, you wanted it to be exactly like your rabbi. And this is so beautiful when you think about what Jesus did because he flips it around. Instead of us going and asking Jesus, can we follow you? He comes to us and looks us right in the eye and says, I think you have what it takes to follow me. I think you can be like me. Come, follow me. What an amazing opportunity. That's why people who were already successful, like Peter and his brother, they dropped their nets. They were already successful fishermen. They were about to take on their family business. But when the rabbi came and said, come follow me, they said, you think I have what it takes? And they immediately left what they were doing to follow their rabbi. I love that Jesus is calling us even now in 2020, come follow me. See, every good rabbi knows that he cannot just teach his students these deep theological things. He also needs to teach them the fundamentals. See, when I was in school, we've all been students before, right? When I was in school, I was the type of student that, you know, I did well enough to keep my GPA where it needed to be so that I could still play sports. I, I, I wanted to play sports more than I wanted to study, but I studied because if I didn't study, I wouldn't be able to play sports. That's, that is not my advice to students today. So please, parents, hear me out. That's just the honest truth. I just knew what that threshold was. And if I could keep my grades to the point where I was eligible to play whatever sport was in that season, I knew what I needed to do. I would talk to my teachers. I would put in the work. I would get my grades where they needed to be. Let's go play ball, okay? That's just how I was. Now, as a student, I learned, because I had some great coaches, especially in middle school, I had some great coaches teach me that if you want to be a great ball player, Corey, here's what you need to do. You need to become a student of the game. You need to become a student of the game. I thought, really? That's, your, that's dumb. I already know everything there is to know about sports. I don't need to be a student, right? But what I realized is how right they were. If I could study, see, I, I couldn't cross over like Kyrie. I mean, I can now. But I couldn't then because I hadn't studied and watched. Let me just say this real quick. This is not spiritual. This is just ballplayers. 
Be a student of the game, because if you study the greats, you'll see how they do things. I'm talking about even, they'll, t- they'll, they'll show you things just by the way they play that no coach could ever really coach you into. Anyway, do I got any ball players in here? I know Kylan's a ball player. Come on up here, bud. So as a student of the game, there's things you learn, and I kid you not, the same things you will learn as a student. What grade are you in, Kylan? Sixth grade, the same things Kylan is learning to play basketball in sixth grade is the same things that he is going to be learning and, and practicing and getting better at all the way into college. Like I said, my coach said, be a student in the game. So I had an opportunity to go watch a college practice and they were doing drills that I did in fifth grade. They were still doing the drills. It's called the fundamentals. One of the best moves in basketball is the pivot move. Go ahead and dribble the ball. Now, let's say he's dribbling, and now there's going to be a double team. Keep dribbling, and now we double team you. You had to pick up your dribble. In basketball, he picked up his dribble. He cannot dribble again, or it's a double dribble. The other team gets the ball. So he has picked up his dribble. Is it over? It's not over if he has the pivot move. If he knows how to pivot correctly, go ahead and pivot. It does not matter how aggressive I am, I cannot get that ball off of him without fouling him because he's got the pivot move. It's a fundamental, it's a little thing. Go ahead and pivot, keep, keep pivoting so they see what it looks like. He can change his trajectory. He can put himself in a position to still score, to pass and not turn the ball over because he's not panicked. It's a small move. He's not going anywhere. He isn't moving more than three feet, but he's able to keep the ball and to do something with the ball because of the fundamentals that he's learned. Thanks, buddy. Give it up for Kylan. How many of you know that it's the little things in life that we do every single day that make the the difference every day, right? It's the little things we do every day that make the difference. I mean, they make a huge difference. If, If you're like, I learned with my children, if I want to have a clean house, I have to make sure that my children clean up their toys every single night because then we don't have to spend all day Saturday cleaning up toys that were left out every single night. You know how I learned this? Because we spent all day Saturday cleaning up toys one time. And I said, this is going to stop. So it's the little things every day that we do that creates the momentum for the impact we want to make. It's the little things, it's the fundamentals. I want to teach to you something many of you have maybe even heard before. You've heard Pastor Josh mention it even last week. It's a fundamental concept that every Jew, every disciple of Jesus Christ would have taken and clung to as the centerpiece of their life. This was the fundamentals as to who they were as a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four and five. It's called the Shema. This is a prayer but it's more than a prayer. It's a verse in the Bible, but it is more than a verse in the Bible. It's more than something that you could put into a frame and put it on your refrigerator. I mean, this is a culture and a lifestyle of obedience. This was who Ananias was at his very core. Deuteronomy chapter six, verse four and five says, listen, everybody say, listen. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength. There's four things I want to point out to you about this verse. These four things can revel, these four things can be the fundamentals 
that can change the trajectory of your life. They're small moves, like a pivot move. But if you continue to practice them and you continue to put them into place every single day, it will change your life. It will create a lifestyle of obedience in your life. The first thing it says is to listen. The Hebrew word here is shema, which coins the phrase in the name of the prayer, shema. The word shema in Hebrew means to hear and obey. It means both. It doesn't mean just listen. It means listen with the intent to act. Listen and obey. Which for me means to observe and take in. The first thing he teaches his disciples, by the way, they would have quoted this as soon as they woke up and every night before they would go to bed. They would have quoted the Shema, what we just read. Every single Jew, every single disciple, even to this day, would be an honor for them to have the Shema as the last words they say on earth. It's their dying wish. I want to hear you, God. I want to listen to you. I want to observe with my eyes and my ears. I want to take in what it is that you're speaking to me. Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, this very same concept. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of age. Amen. We need to observe. Like I mentioned, I have small children. So listening is different than listening, right? I have to sometimes get down on their level and say, listen to me, eyes and ears. Listen up what I'm about to tell you. You're not listening. Look at me. Are you listening? Okay, you're listening. You're not listening. Okay, you listening? Okay. God is not trying to, he's not trying to disrespect us. He just wants to make sure he has our undivided attention so that we can hear and obey the things here is about to say. It's called active listening. I want to know that you're listening. I want to see your head nod. Okay, now tell me, tell me, what did I just tell you, right? With your children. Tell me what I just said. Okay, you weren't listening. Let's do this again. This beautiful weather we've been having, we just had, you know, an amazing time hiking with the kids. We try to go hiking with them a couple of times over the summer, and we, we try to, like, try out new trails and try to find some that are a little bit more challenging. And it never fails. My son, Joshua, when we get out to go hiking, he takes off. Naturally, seven years old, he should be the trail leader, right? We vote him trail guide. But he just takes off and it's like, whoa, 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 hold on, cowboy. You don't even know which direction we're going in. You need to slow down and you need to listen to the directions because I'm your dad, I know better, and I want to keep you safe. If we're about to hike along the Tuscarawas County River, the Tuscarawas River, I don't want you falling in. Listen to me Take in what I'm about to tell you. It's a lifestyle. The next thing is to engage with your heart, to let what God is speaking to you take root in your heart. To love God. He says, listen up, love me with all of your heart. What does that mean? It means to engage God, engage his word. Let it take root. It's different than just hearing. It's taking it in, letting it sink in, and letting it begin to grow, to take root. This is when our lives begin to show healthy because healthy things grow. In the parable about the seed being planted, Jesus tells in Mark chapter 4, it says that other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock, but the seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. 
but the plant soon wilted under the hot sun. And since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Our love for God will die if we do not let it sink in and grow. He asks us to love him with all of our heart, which means we internalize what it is he's speaking to us. This is where we study and consume the word of God. We take it from our ears and let it settle into our heart. The next thing we can do is to then address our soul. To love God with our soul means we take authority over the things we can control. It wasn't until I was a grown man that I realized I do have control over my temper. I do have control over my attitude, over my actions, over my emotions. I don't have the excuse of, well, this is just how I am. This is just my personality. I have control over that if I stop and choose to love God with my soul and address the areas, take authority over the areas that do not match up with what God is saying. There is no bad habit in this room that could outdo what Saul was doing and planning to do on the road to Damascus. Once again, it does not matter where you are, where you start out, it's where you finish. No one is too far from God. No one is outside of his love and outside of his authority. We need to align our souls with him and this is the path to obedience. Galatians chapter five, verse 17 speaks to the struggle. The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the spirit wants. And the spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. It's the struggle. It's the internal battle we all feel every single day. To love God with our soul means to address the sinful nature. And the fourth thing is loving God with our might with our strength is to obey with your hands and feet. So we take it in, we let it take root, we take authority. This is the moment where we now are ready to take action. In James chapter one, verse 21, it says, get rid of all of the filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word of God has been planted in your hearts for it has the power to save your souls. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you're only fooling yourself. This is where we get to take action to receive the commission of God, where he says to go therefore into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, teaching them to observe all of the things that I have taught you. This is the heroic obedience that is available, ready to be accessed if we step into what God is calling us into. It's a culture of Shema. Would you please stand with me? I'd like to pray that each and every one of us would just take a moment over these next few moments as we respond, that God would give us the wisdom to make the right choices to choose today to become students, not the type of student that just wants to get by, but students of his word every single day, studying his word and acting upon what he is teaching us in his word so that we can make a difference every single day. That is what an everyday saint 